On Sunday, the NFL staged its penultimate week of action before Super Bowl 52. The Patriots and the Eagles were crowned conference champions, beating the Jaguars and the Vikings. While the first matchup of the day between New England and Jacksonville was certainly the more compelling game, the outcome of the second match between Philly and Minnesota was what really got me thinking critically. Now, I do live in the Twin Cities, but I am not a Vikings fan, so I am provided an intimate, unbiased look at an entire fan base. Following their miraculous win over New Orleans in the divisional round, the entire state of Minnesota was swept up in Minneapolis miracle fever. You could not go anywhere, do anything, or talk to anyone without the Vikings coming up in conversation. You see, to many Vikings fans, the Minneapolis miracle was a sign. A sign that the franchise had finally shaken the curse that had caused so many heartbreaking losses. A sign that assuredly meant this tortured fan base was at least over the hump. And if you watched the game at all on Sunday night, you know that certainly never happened. The Vikings drove right down the field to score on their opening possession, and then were outscored 38 to nothing the rest of the game. They were pounded. The score was arguably closer than the game really was. It was, it was bad. Surprisingly enough, though, that takes me back to the 2017 Oklahoma Sooners. As the season sped on, as records kept falling, as it became increasingly clear that Baker Mayfield was the Heisman Trophy winner, I believe a sense of destiny began to fall upon the fan base and maybe the team. This team is meant to be. This is the team to finally do it, or at least after 18 years, to finally do it. Of course, that turned out not to be the case. Oklahoma lost in the Rose Bowl to Georgia, probably another fan base that felt its team was living a dream season. And I'm sure a large portion of those Georgia fans similarly felt a sense of destiny at the conclusion of the Rose Bowl. I mean, with how it ended? But of course, only for those feelings to turn around and punch them right in the gut at the worst possible time. So, I will begin the show today with leaving you this one fact that may be hard to swallow for some passionate sports fans. There is no such thing as a team of destiny. No such thing as an outcome that is meant to be. You still have to prepare, scheme, and execute in the pivotal moments. There is not fate or destiny to fall back on in these instances. The story is not yet written. Sometimes you win, and sometimes you lose. Maybe it really is as simple as that. I'm Grant Benson. This is West of Everest. Number 18, Jermaine Grisham. The tight end flips from the left to the right. Big opening has five, has ten, and he is on at the 50 of foot race. 30, 25, 20, and going to be knocked down by Devin Gregg after a run from scrimmage of, well, let's see here. <laughs> We've got our totalizator out. 70 yards, I believe, it's what it's going to be. Quick no huddle. Sooners on offense. Looking. Sam will run. 10, 5, touchdown Oklahoma. DeMarco Murray and Sam Bradford welcome us into another edition of West of Everest. Two plays you just heard right there. The first, a 70-yard run by Murray, and that was followed up by a 15-yard touchdown run by Bradford. Each play came on the first drive of the game against Texas A&M back on November the 8th, 2008. The Sooners went on to win that game easily over the Aggies, 66-28. 
Hi, everyone. I'm Lee Benson. You heard my brother Grant at the top of the show with the opening take. And once again, this is West of Everest, the show bringing you analysis and opinion of OU football from a member of the media and an OU supporter outside of the Sooner State. I can't wait to talk to you today about all the Sooner stuff that happened on Monday. A new coach, a player leaves, and is a coach leaving? We'll also revisit the very best prediction ever made on this show. Very best ever. Plus, we'll talk a little Sooners basketball at the very end. But before we get to all of that, I'd like to remind you that West of Everest is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. If this is the first time you've listened to the show, please feel free to leave us a rating and or some feedback on iTunes. If you've got a question for us, don't hesitate to drop us an email, westofeverest at gmail.com, or you can reach us on Facebook. Just search for our page, West of Everest. I must add that our Facebook page is in the very early stages. Grant and I are still trying to determine what we're going to post on the page, aside from links to each episode and whatnot. So feel free to give us a like on Facebook as well if you're so inclined. And finally, just a big thank you to all of you who support and listen to the show. We can't thank you enough for your feedback and assistance on making the show as successful as it has become. All right, let's bring back Grant to talk some OU football. What's going on, Grant? Wow, Lee, November 8th of 2008. I got to tell you, man, that day, a wide-eyed OU freshman and his brother, Lee, actually went to that game in College Station. Do you remember being there for that game, Lee? Of course I do. We got up early Saturday morning in Norman and drove all the way to College Station, and we must have had the most random route to College Station because I remember feeling like we were in the middle of nowhere, and then all of a sudden, College Station just kind of popped up out of the distance on the, uh, the the back roads we took. And that was before, like, on the cell phone, you had Google Maps and, like, all the really nice, um, I guess, mapping apps. And I think we had, like, one of those Garmins that you had in the car that, I mean, they were, they were cool, they were good, but apparently it took us on a really bizarre route to College Station. And I thought we were lost for a bit, but anyways... That was fun uh, at, at the time. I think it, I think November 8th, that might have been Sam Bradford's birthday or something like that. Or maybe his birthday is like November 10th. What an incredibly odd thing to remember. Uh, yeah, it's because... You're furiously <laughs> typing away trying to figure it out, aren't you? Sam Bradford's yeah, birthday. Yeah, November 8th. So that was his birthday. That's probably why I remember it, because it was actually the day of the game. That's so... You have, you have such a man crush on him. It's been... And, you know what? It, it's been around for a decade, too. I think you had a man crush on him at that time as uh-huh. well. Uh huh. Well, he was the best quarterback in college football. And uh, I, I wanted to include that DeMarco Murray run in the intro because, as you probably remember, you know, the, we were in the student section, or the, I guess the, uh, the opposing team section at Kyle Field. And it was way, way up in the stands back then. And we had some terrible seats. And the whole crowd was so excited for that game. And all of a sudden, on the second play of the game, DeMarco Murray goes 70 yards, and it was just like all the air was taken out of the crowd, and it was so neat to be on the other side of it because obviously we were happy about that play. And then Sam Bradford scores two plays later, and then the route was on. That game was not remotely close. At least I don't remember. I remember that game being very uh, uncompetitive. I I, I can't really recall A&M putting up much of a fight in that game. I, I don't know. I mean, it was almost 10 years ago, Lee. Do you remember anything about it? No, it wasn't close. I do remember that was the day later in the game when the, I mean it was it was basically over. Um, I want to say Iowa like upset Michigan or Penn Michigan State. State. It was Penn, Penn State. State. 
and on they like a field, yeah they we announced the it and, and uh, the OU section cheered after that. I remember that, yeah, because if mm-hmm. you if you recall, that was yeah it was uh, Iowa or, or it was Iowa or Penn State. I want to say Penn State was undefeated, right? And Iowa beat them. That's what happened, right? I, yeah, I think Iowa was the the team who did the upsetting. It was a last second field goal. I want to say. Yeah, and if so, I recall, I think I think Penn State was kind of the last piece that needed to fall for OU to actually gain some momentum and kind of look like they uh, they controlled their destiny at the end of that season. I think Penn State was the final chip to fall. So, a long time ago, that was ten years ago or nine certainly years, helped. nine certainly seasons helped. ago. And little did I know that um, about seven or eight years later, I'd be in College Station for two years, actually covering Texas A&M football. And going to many Texas A&M football games, being on the field of Kyle Field, which was so so bizarre. I actually have the ticket stub from that game, that OU Texas A&M game. Still, it's got uh, Mike Sherman on the cover. <laughs> was he? Oh, he was the coach then, huh? For some reason, yeah. I guess. Yeah, you forget about Mike Sherman. Seems like it's always RC Slocum, and then who was it before? Uh, Dennis, uh, Dennis Franchione. Franchione, and I guess Sherman was after Franchione, wasn't he? And then Sumlin. And then, and then Sumlin, Kevin Sumlin replaced Sherman. Yeah. Wow, I feel I feel like there was someone between Sherman and Sumlin, but I, I guess not. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Okay, that's enough reminiscing on the past. Quite the Monday this week. A lot of OU news broke. We begin with an ESPN report stating that now former Georgia assistant coach Shane Beamer is coming to OU as an assistant head coach. Beamer is a former VaTech head coach, Frank Beamer's son. Uh, Beamer is former Virginia Tech head coach Frank Beamer's son. There we go. That sentence makes more sense now. Shane Beamer had spent the previous two seasons at Georgia as the tight ends and special teams coach. He's had previous coaching stops at Virginia Tech from 2011 to 2015 as the associate head coach and running backs coach under his dad. Prior to his stint at VaTech, he was a defensive coach for a lot of years, which is kind of interesting. He coached linebackers and cornerbacks at South Carolina for a few seasons as well as special teams. And prior to that, he coached corners at Mississippi State. So, Grant, what are your thoughts on Beamer coming to Oklahoma? Well, my first thought, Lee, was obviously uh, special teams. Uh, the Sooners, it seems like it's been it's been a decade. It almost seems like the Sooners have been, uh, outside of field goal kicking, have been have been an effective special teams unit. I mean, like along the lines of like uh, you know their coverage units, using their special teams as actual you know as a as a weapon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, when you're thinking of special teams, it's 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 Frank Beamer at Virginia Tech, who you always think about first. Um, and then, of course, now his son, Shane Beamer, who is over at Georgia, and everyone knows they had a really good special teams unit. So I, I, I like any sort of any sort of hire that's going to that's going to touch on special teams because because I do think that's an important part of the game. And there, there's honestly just no excuse to have below average special teams if you're at a place like Oklahoma. So I think that's a re- this is a really good hire uh, in that direction. Also, he's an accomplished recruiter. Uh, he's a guy who. He recruited Alshon Jeffrey to South Carolina just this year at Georgia. He's recruited a, a handful of five-star guys. So just a, a, another accomplished recruiter coming in. He's he's on the younger end. He's he's 40 years old. So just honestly a lot to like about this hire. He's, he's a guy that has a really good reputation uh, in the coaching circle. And uh, Leah, a hire that actually caught me by surprise. I definitely... I. Typically, I, I think when when they're you know going out to make a hire like this, you hear some rumblings about it. This sort of came out of nowhere. What did you think? It came out of nowhere to me too. Uh, granted, I'm I'm not really one to be perusing message boards and kind of insider uh, boards. Uh, like I know, for example, like uh, you know on the Oklahoma beat, obviously Sooner Scoop and, and Carrie and Eddie and, and the like there. And 
um, McQuistian, you know, those guys are always kind of on the inside and, and they have some nice sources. But I, I don't really ever go to, to check out their stuff, to be honest with you. I mean, I, you know, we're, we're fine. I mean, we're on the same beat and I, you know, I'm friendly with them and everything like that. But anyways, I, I guess I think they were might they might have been kind of push, pushing some stuff out last weekend. But anyway, I didn't see it. So to your point. I, I I didn't see that coming either, and I heard the the the, the news, and I thought oh, that's kind of random, uh, especially considering it's an offensive themed hire, and that's the thing. I mean, he's coming in reportedly to be an offensive assistant coach, but yet you and I, and I'm sure the vast majority of Oklahoma fan base are looking at this as a special teams type hire because of his dad, number one, obviously, and number two, he's actually been a special teams coach as re- recently as the last two years at Georgia along with the tight ends coach. So it's it's nice that he's got that background, and I would assume, I mean, he's got to be also coming in to help out with the special teams. Uh, I don't see why he wouldn't be. And Georgia's special teams, and we kind of went over it a little bit before the Rose Bowl, and, and you had some good numbers. I mean, Georgia's special teams was one of the best in the nation this past year. It was, I mean, it was, a, it was an elite unit. Per S&P, it was number one by a wide margin. And I knew I figured you'd have the S and P numbers. I, I don't. I, I don't have up, the raw numbers. I just know that they were number one overall in overall special teams. Sure, and and that's. I figured you'd have the S and P numbers. So I did some did some digging to find some raw numbers of this past year. And as far as uh, you know, when you think of special teams, what do you think of? You think of kickoff coverage, punt coverage. You know, punt returns, kickoff returns, of course, uh, and then of course block you know blocking kicks you know i mean it's it's rare but i mean some teams just seem like they're really good at it especially those old va tech teams where it seemed like frank beamer and company they always seem to get blocked punts or even blocked field goals at just really opportune times so i looked back at this past year for georgia in 2017 uh net punting which field position game that's always super important one of the best in the nation eighth in the country in net punting georgia was this past year an average of 41.6 yards of net every time they punted the ball which that's huge. I mean, especially if you're punting from, you know, near midfield or something like that, and you're you're downing lots of teams inside the twenty, if not inside the ten. So net punting, they were they were exceptional, and then everywhere else across the board, as as far as punt returns, kickoff returns, not elite, but in the top thirty-ish. I mean, thirty-first in the nation in punt returns, averaging about ten yards per punt return, which. Compare that to Oklahoma this past year, Grant, and OU averaged only 5.6 yards per punt return, and OU was 97th in, in the nation. So all throughout the board, and I'll get to the other numbers here in a moment, Georgia's special teams were were much better than Oklahoma's this past year. Uh, kickoff returns for Georgia, 20th in the nation, averaged 23.5 yards per kickoff return. Compare that with Oklahoma, who was 98th in the nation, 19.2, yard, uh, 19.2 yards per kickoff return. Uh, kickoff return defense and we saw Oklahoma struggle returning kicks against Georgia in that second half of the Rose Bowl Georgia was 40th in the nation allowing 19 and a half yards per kickoff return Oklahoma was 95th in the nation and uh, punt return defense 45th in the nation so it's not like they were top 10 in all these but they were I mean top 50 in every single one of these categories whereas compared to Oklahoma the the best uh, number Oklahoma has is net punting they were 63rd and punt return defense, they were 63rd. Everything else like that's almost in the hundreds as far as raw numbers when it comes to special teams. So you would hope that Beamer coming in would boost Oklahoma special teams significantly. 
Yeah, Lee, and I, I did want to bring this up too. Um, the way, per S and P, I wanted to correct myself. They were number one going into bowl season. Uh, at the end of bowl season, they finished number three overall in special teams. The stat of note I want to I want to highlight for Georgia would be the kickoff success rate, and so how they uh, how they determine success rate for special teams on kickoffs like this. Um, a successful kickoff would be a touchback, and a successful kickoff would be anything that. Uh, where the other team doesn't get past the 25-yard line. And so Georgia's special teams unit, in terms of kickoff lead, they had a success rate of 94.8%, which means only 5.2% of all of their kickoffs went past the 25-yard line, which is slightly ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> and, so, and, and, you, and everyone saw um, in the Rose Bowl, a lot of that had to do with how they were covering the kickoffs and not necessarily touchbacks. And so I... I I fully believe there's absolutely no excuse for why OU cannot do that exact same thing. There's just no excuse whatsoever. I'm sure there might be someone who could who could offer up an argument to me. And honestly, I don't know if I want to hear it. There's just there's just no legitimate excuse for why o, OU cannot be as successful on kickoffs as as a team like Georgia. I, I just I'm, I don't see any evidence to suggest that at all. And just look at some examples from that Rose Bowl of special teams really affecting the game positively for Georgia and negatively for Oklahoma. Again, Ugga's special teams in that game was fantastic. We saw Nicole Hardman. He had a 20-plus yard punt return in the third quarter of that game that set up a touchdown for Georgia. Three Georgia punts were downed inside the 20-yard line of that game. One of those came down at the two-yard line. Georgia's kickoff team, as you kind of just referenced, consistently forced Oklahoma to begin drives inside its own 20-yard line, if not own 25-yard line in the second half of that game, just because of good coverage and, and the way they, they covered the field goal, uh, the kickoffs. And of course, finally, they blocked a field goal in overtime that pretty much killed any chance Oklahoma had at keeping that game alive. So, I mean, Sooner fans saw firsthand how good a Shane Beamer special team's uh, coach team could look like in that Rose Bowl however Grant though I, I gotta say prior to 2017 Beamer's special teams numbers weren't great uh, Georgia's special teams were pretty bad actually in 2016 which was his first year as Georgia's special teams coordinator particularly in net punting and kickoff coverage so Georgia was ranked in the 100s nationally in both of those categories which is worse than Oklahoma was this past year he also had some special teams experience at South Carolina in 2007, 2009, and 2010. 2007, he was the co-special teams coordinator. 09 and 10, he was actually the special teams coordinator. Those teams weren't all that special at special teams either. The one exception was in 2009, South Carolina blocked five kicks or punts, which is a, a really, really high number for block kicks. So to your point that you made a moment ago about you don't, there's no excuse why Oklahoma couldn't be as good as Georgia was this past year. I'm with you, and maybe it's a talent thing with with Beamer. Maybe with more talent, like he had at Georgia this past year, he was able to do more on special teams. For instance, Georgia this past year blocked four kicks or punts this past year. So four, and we saw one of them in the Rose Bowl. So it, it was a great team at net punting and very good on most every other special teams category. And Oklahoma's got a lot of talent on its roster, as we all know. So maybe the Sooners are special they're kind of a special team sleeping giant and more emphasis on special teams is all the program needs to turn things around and help out the offense and the defense. I, I, I think I think I you certainly have to acknowledge the things you said, especially about the talent. Of course there's an argument to be made about, you know, if you're 
if you're recruiting more blue chip players, you know, if that blue chip ratio is above 50%, what they always talk about, of course, you're going to have blue chip guys in backup roles. There's usually the type of people who are going to be on your special teams unit. So, of course, there's a lot to that. You know, if you have four and five star guys on your special teams unit, it's obviously, you know, has a has a much higher likelihood of being better. However, all of the stuff that Georgia was successful with in terms of special teams, the, the thing that I think about the most is those kickoffs in the second half, which were huge. That's all coaching. There's that's that was all done uh, by the coaching staff and it was just executed well by the kicker and everything else. I, I mean, I'm you, you can be coached to stay in stay in your gaps and tackle and and that's exactly what those plays were. And I basically from it just seems like in, in the last decade OU is kind of has erred more on the side of caution with special teams uh, with their special teams units. They want to use it as more of something not to screw up with. Very much like how they've. Uh, how they've uh, schemed their defense the past six, seven, eight years, and, and I and I really think that new voices are needed to be heard. Uh, just some new ideas need to be heard in those rooms, and and, and I, I would really like them to start transitioning more to an attacking style on special teams, using special teams as a weapon and not just something to hide. Which I, I you can you can argue up and down with me all you want, but there's there's no way you'll be able to convince me that that hasn't been the number one objective of OU special teams the last decade. And it's been literally just to hide the special teams. And, and I don't, I don't, I don't know a reason for that. I don't, I don't understand why you have to do that. Uh, as long as you're well coached, um, I, I, there's no excuse to not have at least a solid special teams uh, unit. Jay Bulware, the special teams coordinator for Oklahoma and, and Bulware's held that position at OU uh, this was his, his fifth year this past season. And, um, you know, may, I, I surely I, I'm not anticipating him losing that position because it's been reported that Beamer's coming in as an offensive assistant. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll see how he can help out Jay Bulware. Uh, just just of note, as far as you know, blocking kicks or blocking punts, uh, Oklahoma actually had one this year. And I honestly, I don't even remember it. Do you remember the, the kick or it must have been a field goal that was blocked or something? So had- I don't remember a punt. I don't remember a punt getting blocked. Had to have been a field goal. I don't remember it at all. And I, that's funny. I was actually going to say, I was like, when was the last time OU actually blocked a kick? I was going to say it, it's, it ha- it's had to have been five or six years at least. I, I mean, I so just yeah, it even... was, I, I looked at the numbers. They, they actually had one this year, which the fact that you and I don't even remember it means that it wasn't really that big of a deal. Uh, prior to, to this year, the last time Oklahoma had any blocked kicks or punts was in 2014, actually. And, Believe it or not, the Sooners blocked five kicks or punts that year, the 2014 season. I I can't believe for a second that any of those blocks was a punt. They haven't gone after a punt in since 2004. Like I mean, it's it's literally been that long. <laughs> I, and I know I'm that was that was a joke. By the way, I'm sure they've come after punts since then. But seriously, their their entire punting strategy or punt return strategy over at least at least since Jalen Saunders left has has been don't give up a fake and just don't fumble that that's I mean that's that's clearly been what they've tried to do on, on punt returns do, do you disagree well I mean I honestly I you know you know me I have the past two years were the most I've watched in the last you know maybe 10 so I haven't even been paying much attention to that but from what I understand yeah that seems to be the case that they're just not very aggressive Oklahoma is when it comes to trying to make plays off of punt returns or even kickoff returns for that matter uh, which I mean it's worked out for them, I guess, for a lot of the times. But you know, when you go into certain games where it'd be nice to have a special teams play, 
when you're incapable of making one just because of the way you play special teams, um, that can come back to bite you. And, and, and Georgia made the special teams plays in that Rose Bowl, and Oklahoma didn't really do anything with it. You just look at it this way. There's, there's three units on a football team, obviously offense, defense, and special teams. The more proficient you are in all three of those units, the better chance you are, uh, are gonna, you know, be of winning. And obviously, you're going to give yourself a better chance when, because as of right now, I think OU special teams units, I think they're below average. Um, I think they're below average because, frankly, OU chooses to be below average at them. Uh, and there's just there's no reason for that anymore. And I'm, uh, I, 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 and I'm not saying they need to come after every kick, every punt, and you know, try to take everything to the house. I'm just saying. Choose your spots a little better. Uh, you know, make make the offense or the other special teams unit make the other team adjust to what you're doing, and don't just don't just go back there. Just you know, being happy that you got to stop and that you're you're now returning a punt. Just try whatever you do not to turn it over. Uh, go out there and operate like you know you're you're the bad boy on the block. I think that's what OU should be doing in the Big Twelve because they are. And there, there's nothing wrong with being aggressive every now and then. And I, I would really like to see a bit of a transition to that style of play. Now, could Beamer's presence mean that Kale Gundy is leaving the Oklahoma coaching staff? Bruce Feldman tweeted Monday that Gundy could leave the Sooners and join Kevin Sumlin's staff at Arizona. By the way, Arizona, or Kevin Sumlin has hired Noel Mazzoni as his offensive coordinator. Mazzoni was someone's offensive coordinator at Texas A&M. So it's not like the 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 OC position is uh, is open at Arizona. Uh, by the way, uh, my boss Dean Blevins tweeted out Monday and then also reported Monday that he's being told that there's a good chance Gundy will remain with the Sooners. And also, you may have seen this today as well, Grant. And again, we're, we record these on Tuesday nights, Tuesday evening, and uh, Tuesday Lincoln Riley tweeted out a picture of him and Kale Gundy. It looked like they were out recruiting uh, today. So take that for what. Uh, you know what it's worth if, if anything at all so uh, it looks like uh kale gundy even though it was reported by bruce feldman that he might go to arizona it's kind of trending towards gundy staying uh, grant i know you're a big fan of gundy and you don't want to see him go no i don't and i i think the sooners uh, this is one of the guys they've been really lucky to retain over the last hey i mean he's he, he's an og guy he came in he was on the very first staff with bob stoops so he's an OG guy, and I know him and him and Mike are the only ones left over. And I guess Schmidt was one of them, and he's gone now. So uh, Gundy is a guy who is who has always just kind of stayed out of the spotlight, and and I'm not sure why he's he's the director of recruiting on the coaching staff. He is he's consistently been OU's best recruiter over the last 19 years. Um, any he's he's been very. Uh, They've moved him around quite a bit on the offensive coaching staff. He's had wider he he has inside wide receivers now. He's done he's done running backs and H backs before. Uh, every single position group that he coaches generally seems to be a very strong group on the team. And, and he's a guy that I think is I I see him as being part of the next national championship staff at OU. And I just think it would really suck if he left. But also at the same time, when you're when you're employing good guys, uh, you know other people are going to come in, you know, are going to come for him. And and I did see some blurb on Twitter earlier today, Lee, and I thought it was a good point. It was it made me think a little bit. I can't remember exactly who who I saw. It was it was one of the OU beat guys, I think, and they were talking to Kale Gundy, whether or not it was over media days this past summer or it was media days for the Rose Bowl. But he had made the offhand comment Kale Gundy did to this reporter who he was talking to. He said. Hey, the little secret is that all offensive coaches want to be play callers 
eventually, and Gundy said that he is no exception to that rule. So that kind of lets you, makes you think. Kale Gundy, I don't think, is really ever going to get an opportunity, at least while Lincoln Riley is here to call plays, or at least it doesn't look that that's going to be the case. Uh, maybe in his head he's thinking, I'd have a better chance of making that a reality at Arizona, even though Neil Mazzoni is that guy in charge right now of the offense. Maybe Kale Gundy feels he'd have a better shot at Arizona, perhaps, but you're saying, Lee, that there is a decent chance that he's going to remain with the Sooners, and I think that would be that'd be a good thing moving forward for OU. But uh, Kale Gundy's a guy that I'm surprised hasn't been poached yet. He's a he has a very good reputation around the country. I believe I saw that on Twitter as well. I think it was Kerry Murdoch that reported that, so I want to give him credit for that. If it wasn't him, then I guess I'm giving him free pub. Uh, it, so anyway, as far as the uh, Kale Gundy talking about how all offensive guys want to call plays, and and of course Lincoln Riley trusts Kale Gundy quite a bit. I mean, he uh, Gundy is up in the press box during games. He's kind of the eye in the sky, as they call it, meaning that Gundy has that all twenty-two look from up top to relay down to Lincoln Riley, kind of what he's seeing. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, the offense obviously for Oklahoma is so good that you know losing an offensive coach probably not the greatest thing. But losing Gundy as an assistant coach would probably not hurt Oklahoma all that much and really be a good thing for him, I believe, because he's been with the Sooners for so long as an assistant, as you talked about a moment ago. I would expect him to want to be either a full-time offensive coordinator or maybe even a head coach by now. He's got a lot of years left coaching. He's still a relatively young guy. I get that he's at his alma mater right now, which is probably a big reason why he's been at Oklahoma for so many years. But coaches, just like players, they're competitors. They're competitive. And at some point, you've got to think that Gundy will want to hold more responsibilities with a team other than as an assistant coach or a position coach like he is right now. And I know he's the co-offensive coordinator with Lincoln Riley currently. But again, I, you got to think that, and I'm sure he's thought about it before. Again, he's been at OU for so many years. He's got to be thinking, you know, I, I, could, I can do this and have more responsibility and be successful at it as far as calling plays go. And uh, one more side note, if uh, man, if you know, who knows about that report about uh, possibly Kevin Sumlin being after Kale Gundy. But um, honestly, if Kevin Sumlin could could go back in time and potentially not bring on Noel Mazzoni and try to bring on Kale Gundy to be an offensive coordinator instead, I bet he'd want to do that because Noel Mazzoni is a great guy. He's a real great soundbite and he's had a, a bit of success at UCLA and a little bit of success, I guess, at Texas A&M. But honestly, the offenses at A&M when he was there were not particularly that good. I mean, he was there for first year with Trevor Knight and then this past year. And A&M's offense just isn't anywhere near as good as it used to be when, when Johnny Manziel was there. So I, you know, I, it'd be, for me, I like to see what Cale Gundy could do as an offensive play caller, offensive coordinator kind of by himself. But at the same time, it, again, it, it wouldn't be great to lose lose him considering that Oklahoma's offense is so good. Yeah, I, and I and, and I don't think you made terrible points there. I just I I don't think it's ever a good thing to lose a a, a good coach. I think Kale Gundy's a really good coach. Man, he's it's crazy. He's been on the offensive staff since since Bob Stoops started in 1999. Lee, just think of all of the the different offensive philosophies that he has seen in his you know in his 19 years at OU or 20 years at OU. Now, it's kind of crazy mm-hmm. to think about. I, I think that's pretty cool. I'm sure the guy's very seasoned. I'm sure he's he's very uh, he's very intelligent when it comes to schemes because he's seen it all. And um, yeah, I'm looking at I'm looking at Noel Mazzoni's his his resume right now. And I saw he he's been at Arizona State and UCLA. You mentioned and 
Arizona. Now remember, Arizona does have Khalil Tate, and that's he's he's kind of a wild card. I don't know how much uh, ha- how much experience Noel Mazzoni has with running quarterbacks or anything like that. So um, it's certainly interesting. Well, he, uh, I mean, he'd have he'd, he'd be fine with it because he's kind of got the West Coast type of system spread. I mean, running more than passing. I mean, I know with Trevor Knight, they. I mean, he was perfect for that system. Uh, I know A and M was once again eight and five because that's what A and M did with when Kevin Sumlin was there. But uh, I mean, A and M got probably the most out of Trevor Knight at that point in his career. That's that season. Um, he was basically what uh, you know what Oklahoma fans remember him as being. I mean, he would have some really good plays, really good throws, and then he'd also have some head scratchers. Uh, but he also ran the ball quite a bit when no Mazzoni was calling plays at, at Texas A&M but um, I think he'd be fine I mean he'd be fine calling plays for Khalil Tate and I'm sure that's a, a probably a part of the reason why uh, someone wanted to bring him on with him aside from the fact that they're obviously friends and they're you know they've coached together for a while now and it's just a familiarity thing and also too that Mazzoni is from the west coast so I'm sure that that kind of helps out with recruiting coming into Arizona now trying to recruit the Pac-12 for sure. I also did want to. I, I did want to to bring up Thule, the the positions or and, and Frank Beamer's his I guess his job titles come in. It, it does. It, it did kind of seem like maybe he is moving into the, like Kale Gundy's territory that he occupies now. So I think maybe that uh, threw a little fuel on the fire uh, once that that Gundy rumor came out from from Bruce Feldman. So I, I yeah I, I think I certainly think there's smoke there. I, I guess we'll we'll see. I, I think there's there's still lots to play out. I think in this whole uh, with the entire coaching staff, and I I think I I mentioned that last week or, or two weeks ago as well. But I'm I I don't think everything is I don't think the book is shut on the coaching staff yet. I, I think there's there's a chance we're we're still going to see some changes uh, some changes coming up. Take that for what you will. But I I, I just have a feeling we're still going to see some changes. More Oklahoma news. Running back Abdul Adams is transferring to Syracuse. He's going to have to sit out the 2018 season. But after that, he'll have two more years of eligibility remaining. So with Adams gone, that leaves the Sooners with Rodney Anderson, Trey Sermon, Marcellius Sutton, a pretty good trio right there. Then you've got Kennedy Brooks. He'll be back in 2018. He injured his shoulder this past year and redshirted. Brooks was a four-star guy coming out of high school, so that's nice. And you've also got incoming freshman four-star player T.J. Pledger, who's already enrolled at Oklahoma. So even with Adams leaving leaving Oklahoma, pretty good spot at running back, Grant. Yeah, and obviously you always hate to see a good player leave because Abdul Adams is a really good player. He's a guy, he's a guy who can absolutely play at Oklahoma, and he's a guy who I think is is capable of being an all-conference type player in the Big Twelve. Uh, so I obviously wish him the the best of luck at Syracuse. I think he'll do well there. I, I think he's gonna he'll he'll I think he'll probably step on campus and and you know be the best player on the offense right away. I would assume. So I, but just just going forward now, I, I don't overall I don't think this hurts OU that much. I mean we've really outside of the the first three or four games of the season we didn't really see Abdul Adams at all the the rest of the year. He had kind of some injury issues, also a bit of a bit bit of fumbleitis this year, also, and so although I I do think this is a good sign, just just because it's a sign of a good program that you're that you're losing guys like Abdul Adams, uh, you know the caliber of player that he is, because you have guys ahead of him and he doesn't feel like he's going to get on the field. Abdul Adams is a legit college football player. And he's leaving OU because he doesn't think that he's going to get any playing time. And I think that's a good problem to have. And I think OU is developing 
a bit of a pipeline here for um, for running backs. Joe Mixon and Samaj P. Ryan are both starting running backs in the NFL. You have Damian Williams, who's also in the NFL, and Adrian Peterson has had has had a Hall of Fame career. You're starting to see OU get some dudes in recruiting at the running back position, and I think this is this is a position that seems very well stocked for the future. Lee, what do you think? Yeah, no, I I agree with you, and it again, yeah, I'm with you. It's it sucks to see Adams go because. Uh, He's he's a really good player. I mean, he's who you predicted to be the the number one guy this year and lead the team in rushing. And I'm sure a lot of people probably predicted that coming into the year because Rodney Anderson was still kind of unproven, had injury problems, and then Trey Sermon certainly was unproven. And then you had guys like me who thought Marcellus Sutton would be, was going to be the leading rusher. Uh, it's kind of funny how obviously Sutton's still on the team, but he didn't really do anything this past year. And the guy that you thought would be the, the best guy is now transferring. Uh, so a lot has changed since August. It's crazy, though. I mean, Abdul Adams averaged over nine yards per carry this past year and didn't see the field a whole lot for the remaining, I don't know, month or so. And even if you take away that 99-yard touchdown run he had against Baylor, he was he's still averaging 7.6 yards per carry. So Abdul Adams, I agree, he's, he's a really good player, and it just makes you wonder if he just wouldn't have had those fumbling issues. Of course, you know, he fumbled against Ohio State, never got a carry the rest of the game, and that's when Trey Sermon stepped up and and came onto the scene and played really well and started getting more opportunities you know Adams still played after that game you know they gave him touches against Tulane they gave him a lot of touches against Baylor and he he was effective then he got injured in that Iowa State game after he started fast against the Cyclones he had like a 35 yard run and he looked really good against Iowa State then he got hurt you know he was one of the many guys that got hurt in that game you know CeeDee Lamb got injured as well uh, I can't remember. I think uh, one of Oklahoma's offensive linemen was banged up in that game, too. But, you know, at that point, Adams missed the Texas game. He missed the Kansas State game. And what happened in the Texas-Kansas State game? We saw Rodney Anderson start to break out. And, yeah, so Lee, just, you, uh, yeah, just bad timing for Abdul Adams. If, ever, if, if everyone remembers, I mean, I was I was still, you know, pubbing for Abdul Adams as as the best back on the team, even all the way up until that first TCU game when Rodney Anderson had like 300-some-odd yards, and that's when he finally, I think, put it all together in the season. You saw just kind of the wow factor from Rodney Anderson. He, he kind of put together his entire his entire game you know, in, in that TCU game. And up until then, Lee, I was still saying, I still think Abdul Adams may, might be the best running back on this team. So, again, we'll, we'll, we'll go back to it. You know, Obviously, sorry to see Abdul Adams leave. Um, having that been said, I think he's going to be really successful at Syracuse, barring any injuries or barring health or anything like that. And, and I, I don't think the Sooners are really going to be hurting in this respect. They have, they have another, they have a top 100 high school player coming in, TJ Pledger, who is, who is kind of in the same mold as, as, as Abdul Adams. And he's an early enrollee, so he's going to have six, seven months to get the playbook under his belt and, and, uh, you know, adjust to the college life and the physicality of college football. So definitely going to be interesting at the running back position. All right, moving right along. A couple of couple of weeks ago, we went over all of our preseason predictions from the show. Some of them are really spot on, some not so much. Somehow, I forgot to include the very best prediction of all. And it's a prediction that I made following the Sooners' first game of the year against UTEP. And Grant, you thought I was crazy, but I was confident in my projection, and it ended up being 100% true. What did I predict? Take a listen. This OU offense will be better 
than that 2008 OU offense. And the X factor is Baker Mayfield. Let's start with the offensive line. That 2008 unit had guys like Trent Williams, Phil Lodeholt, and Duke Robinson, all drafted. Williams still in the league. Lodeholt had a good career with the Vikings. And compare that group to the current unit where Orlando Brown is a surefire first-round pick. Guys like Bobby Evans, NFL uh, DraftScout.com, lists Evans as the ninth best guard in his future draft class. Drew Samia, Ben Powers, at the very minimum, will get legitimate looks in the NFL. Maybe even Eric Wren. Throw in the coaching of Bill Biedenboe, and, and there's a chance this line is even better than that unit in 2008. So what about the current wide receivers, though? They're so unproven. They don't hold a candle to that 2008 unit. Well, yeah, it does. Joaquin Iglesias led OU in receiving in 2008. The next leading wide receiver, wide receiver, I must emphasize that, was Manny Johnson, followed by a freshman, Ryan Broyles. Are you telling me that Jeff Bidette's not as good as Joaquin Iglesias or Manny Johnson? Are you telling me that CeeDee Lamb can't be just as good or maybe even better than Ryan Broyles was as a freshman? Can Jeff Mead fill in and be that third guy? Maybe it's Marquise Brown. Maybe it's Jordan Smallwood. Point is, both receiving cores aren't that much different. But when you throw in Mark Andrews, who will be doing his best Jermaine Gresham impersonation this year, and the possible emergence of freshman Grant Calcaterra, the current OU pass catchers are every bit as comparable to that 2008 group. Running back, okay, this is a fun one. It was DeMarco Murray, stud in the NFL, and Chris Brown. He was a really solid college running back. Then Moses Madu would kind of fill in here and there back in 2008. The one-two punch of Murray and Brown was electric. Both ran for over 1,000 yards. But maybe 2017 OU has three viable backs instead of just two. Abdul Adams, Marcellius Sutton, both looked really good against UTEP. We're still kind of waiting on Rodney Anderson. Not saying any of these guys will be as effective in the NFL as Murray, but the current depth and talent is intriguing. And you got to throw in Trey Sermon as well. I didn't mention him as uh, during the running back talk. Finally, though, the quarterback, and I alluded to this at the start, this position is the deal breaker. Sam Bradford was an awesome college quarterback. Nobody's going to dispute that. Big arm, supremely accurate, limited mistakes, just incredible. But Baker Mayfield is a better college quarterback. Mayfield's passer rating is higher than Bradford's. Mayfield is just as or even more precise throwing the football than Bradford. And even though Mayfield is short in stature, man, he's got a great arm. But the main reason why Mayfield is better than Bradford is that killer instinct that Mayfield possesses. Sam just never had it. And that's shown throughout his NFL career. I think the one time Sam Bradford had a huge chip on his shoulder was ironically when he injured his shoulder. Bradford worked really hard to rehab and get ready for the NFL draft, and he came out on his pro day looking bigger and stronger than ever. Bradford knew he needed to bust his ass to prove that he was the best quarterback in that draft. His hard work paid off by getting paid as the number one pick. But when it comes to on-the-field fire, Bradford just has never been able to take it to another gear. But Mayfield does. You get the sense that this guy is not okay with coming in second place. He returned this season to win a national championship, and I believe his want to win a title is why this current offense will be better than the one Bradford led nine years ago. So, after hearing all of that, is that not the greatest prediction in the history of sports? 
I don't know, Lee. I mean, I it's I I think I think you were right. I think I think this 2017 OU offense did end up being better than the 2008 unit. I, I think it, it probably is a little closer than people want to give it credit for. Um, for instance, I, I, I do think in retrospect now, or at least going back, now that the season is over, I do think the 08 offensive line was probably better, especially on uh, the, with the tackles. Trent Williams right now is an all-pro tackle. Phil Lodeholt started eight or nine seasons in the NFL. Uh, he was he was the left tackle on that team, so I, I think the 08 line was probably better, probably more talented. Uh, other than that, though, I, I don't really have any complaints. I think the the receiving core in 17 was considerably better. I think the running back core as a group was better than 08. Uh, I mean, I, I guess the the one thing that you could kind of toss up is Mark Andrews versus Gresham, which I would take Gresham in a heartbeat over Andrews, but. Um, which is kind of which is kind of ironic because Andrews is the first Mackey winner at OU, but I, I'm kind of with you. I'd probably I'd probably lean Gresham as well over Andrews. Uh, 2008 Jermaine Gresham in this 2017 offense would have been would have would have been brutal for other teams. It would have been disgusting to watch. <laughs> so I I yeah I I don't think there's anyone who is going to argue that Jermaine Gresham is is a more talented probably was probably a better college player than Mark Andrews. Not a not a dig at Mark Andrews at all. It's it's hard to be you have a better college career than Jermaine Gresham did, but um, yeah, Lee, you know, hats off to you. That was a good prediction. I don't you you kind of went off the rails there at the end with all of the national championship talk that didn't really come to fruition. But uh, you know, other than that, yeah, it's hard. I mean, that was a great prediction. I remember calling you crazy too when you said it. I remember calling you crazy, and you, you turned out to statistically be one hundred percent right. So. Congratulations! You can you can spike the football if you want to. Oh, I I am. That's why I wanted to play that in full for you on the show. I just we had to relive that. And uh, I mean, oh, you got two wins away from a title, and they put up forty eight points against Georgia, and and in that offense against another elite SEC defense in a in a national championship. Uh, I mean, obviously it wasn't the national championship game; it was a playoff game. It was it was different back in 08, but. That offense in 2017 did a heck of a lot better than the 2008 offense did against an elite SEC defense in the national title game. So that 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 Florida defense just—it's hard to even describe how much better that Florida defense was than this Georgia defense, though. Like I, I can't. So hopefully you're not comparing those. The floor that floor that 08 Florida defense was quite a bit better than even though I think even though I think Georgia's. Uh, Georgia this year I think Roquan Smith would probably be the best player on those two defenses but that that Florida defense as a whole in 08 was was a lot better than this Georgia unit or at least in my opinion um yeah I, I'd say definitely the Florida defense was better it'd be it- especially in the secondary well, it, especially in the secondary speaking of that it'd be interesting to see what would have happened in that game if the officials would have not allowed Georgia's not Georgia Florida's secondary to get away with ridiculous PIs that oh the tar and the, the the targeting that didn't targeting didn't exist at the time but the textbook targeting from uh was it major right yeah. on Manny Johnson on like the third play of the game which would have gotten major right ejected and then people probably would have been questioning his NFL draft stock afterwards if he was in the if he was in the uh, what's it called era the what's it called the targeting, targeting era yeah I mean he literally I mean he went helmet to helmet if I remember right with uh, Joaquin Iglesias. 
I think it was a, I think it was a Glacis. It was, or was it Manny? It was Manny Johnson. Was Manny, okay, and the ball like hit him in his back, so like the ball hadn't even gotten there yet. So, I mean, it was like, the easiest PI call ever, and they just didn't. It's throw one the flag. of the dirtiest helmet to helmet hits I've ever seen watching college football, and that's not hyperbole. And it was nothing, and it set the tone for the rest of the game. I mean, it was just we're not gonna. And I think I think actually Florida did get end up getting penalized quite a bit in that game. But they should have been penalized yeah, T- even more. T- <laughs> Tebow got a personal foul. Yeah, remember his little his little gator chomp. Yeah, against Nick Harris. I don't. I don't. I don't want to talk about that game. I, as as I alluded to last week, I think that's that's still my number one most painful game probably ever as a Sooner fan. Well, then we won't talk about it. Uh, finally, on the show after uh, the the best prediction uh, in the history of sports that uh, will never be matched ever, uh, and I don't even want to hear about that Sports Illustrated predicting the Astros to win the World Series like three years ago. I mean, how many times have they done that and it's been wrong? So, like, I don't care about that. That's a sidebar. Uh, let's, talk, let's talk a little basketball. And this time last week, you were feeling uneasy about the Kansas State game and you ended up being correct. And uh, funny how, how much a week can, can make, you know, you feel differently about a team. I felt really good about OU a week ago, and now I'm like, eh. I'm not as I'm certainly not as confident in the Sooners as I was uh, at this time last week. I'm now losing back-to-back games at Kansas State and then at Oklahoma State. So uh, we're recording this before the Kansas game. OU's playing Kansas tonight, uh, Tuesday night, January 23rd. A huge, huge game, and uh, you know Oklahoma wins that game. Grant, uh, you know that would be massive, and and everyone will start to kind of forget about the last couple games. But uh, yeah, not uh, not feeling great about Oklahoma right now, to be honest with you. Yeah, and of course, I think we're definitely in full-on pump-the-brakes mode right now, especially after the last two. I think, obviously, you have to – there needs to be a bit of, you know, context involved with this. They did play on the road both times. Uh, Against Oklahoma State on on Saturday, they were missed three at the buzzer away from winning the game. So, you know, I'm going to try not to panic too much. I I think – uh, Trey Young in the second half against in Bedlam on Saturday was was almost legendary. He was that good. Um, I know he took he took almost forty shots in that game to get to forty eight points, but um, in the second half he was he was much more efficient, a lot better, and and really that this team is it's it's just it's it's you know this team is going to go as Trey Young goes. I, I think I had maybe last week at this time overrated them a little bit in, in terms of a supporting cast. Right now, it's just when when the other when the rest of the team when they're when they're open jumpers aren't falling, they really struggle, and, and especially just because this team isn't particularly wonderful defensively. I, I I don't I think they're they're better than a lot of people say they are defensively, but um, they're they certainly have lapses at times, and and I think sometimes other teams get into the paint far too easily. I I think that I think they're awful defensively. I, it's. I mean, they're in the 300 right now in points allowed this year, and I don't. That means nothing. They why? They, why does it mean nothing? Fa- because they they play the fastest tempo in the country. Yeah, but I mean, they're the worst in the Big 12. And why are Big 12 other Big 12 teams able to prevent other teams from scoring so much and also score a bunch of points as well? Because other Big 12 teams don't play high tempo like OU does. OU plays OU's tempo is insanely. They play very fast, and so I, I'm not. I, I don't. Don't misread me here, and and no way am I arguing that the defense is good. It's not. I'm just saying the defense is not. It's not necessarily bad. 
it isn't. the The defense is the defense is certainly capable of getting stops. Um, and I've said it. They have w- with McNeese and Latin. They have two good rim protectors uh, on the inside. They're just uh, you know they they're they're not they're not wonderful at closing out and they're not wonderful at at uh, at basically at finishing plays around the basket. And, um, you know, you'll have to excuse me. I'm not, I don't know as much about basketball as I do football. It's, it's more of, uh, just, just observations on my end, but, uh, defensively, I don't think they're as bad as they say they are. Of course, the numbers aren't great. I, I think they're probably more in the middle of the pack defensively, but for, uh, for a nationally relevant team, a team that, you know, wants to make some, wants to make some noise in March, middle of the pack defensively is not good enough. So, so don't, don't misinterpret what I'm saying. I don't think they're good enough on defense at all. They need to get better. The best part about defense uh, with basketball, though, is a lot of it is effort-based, and, and I think they can correct this before the end of the season. Well, that's my thing. I mean, there's nowhere to really go but up right now for the Oklahoma defense. I, I disagree. I think the defense is not very good at all. And, yeah, it's great that they have a couple of rim protectors, but, um, I mean, they're they're not looking very good recently, which, honestly, that's, that's fine. I don't really care because it's January 23rd as we're recording this. I'm just saying get better by March when it actually matters the most. And that's when Oklahoma will need to make a run, whether it be in the Big 12 tournament, whether it obviously be in the NCAA tournament, and hopefully they don't just tank and miss the NCAA tournament at this point. That would be just a disaster. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, slowly figure it out. You don't have to do it right now. Don't don't use up all your energy right now in January and early February or whatever on your defense. Just kind of save it. Save it for March and then come out and start playing some good defense and, and make some shots and make a run. That's all that matters. All right. And I, yeah, yeah. And I, and I totally agree with you. There's still plenty of time to write the ship. I mean, we got, we got two months for them to write the ship, basically. And so I, I, I do also want to bring it up. There's there, college basketball, it almost seems like it's, it's worse than college football with this, just in terms of, of overreactions on one game. And I think it's even more egregious in college basketball because you play 30 games. But I, I, th- I do think people need to be uh, a little careful about overreacting to two games on the road, uh, especially against Kansas State. Lee, did you watch any of the Kansas State game? Yeah, yeah. They, okay they they went through a they th- they went through a period in the second half of that game where they literally didn't miss a jump shot for 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, did you, I'm serious. Yeah, I mean, in K-State uh, Oklahoma's credit, K-State's all of a sudden playing the best basketball of the year. I mean, they've won ever since that game, they've won two more games since then. Um, let's see, they beat I think they beat they beat Texas Tech or no, they beat Baylor. They beat Baylor in Waco, which it, I mean, we all know how difficult it is to win on the road in this league and Kansas State when did it in Waco. I mean, Baylor's not a world beater this year, but Baylor's still a solid team. And, uh, and, then, yeah, and they had another win on Saturday. Texas. I think they they beat Baylor on no, they beat Baylor yesterday on Monday. I think they beat Texas Tech on Saturday and they blew them out. I think. Yeah, I'm, I can't remember. That's the, I mean, I I I know that. Jeez, uh, uh, TCU finally got that big win Monday night over West Virginia. So TCU they they got to the top twenty five and then they go ahead and knock off a top ten team. So it's just it's just so, it's a ridiculous just the, conference. The, yeah, the the Big Twelve basketball conference is is absolutely ridiculous, and um, I, I think obviously playing the round robin schedule is going to make this even even more difficult. Playing that round robin schedule is really going to favor the teams like Kansas, you know that that recruit at a top five level every single year. That's especially in this era of new Big Twelve basketball. I think that's why it's going to be easier for them to have a grasp on the conference um, than it was previously because the the schedules aren't unbalanced. So there's literally nine teams that are going to Lawrence. Um, 
So it, it's a lot harder that way. Uh, and so you know what? The, the Sooners tonight, hopefully when you're listening to this on, on, on Wednesday, the Sooners have, have, have beaten Kansas. They're at home. It's a game I think they should win. They should win this game if, if they're going to be a serious March team. Uh, it, so we'll, we'll see what happens. This is a team I still think is really fun to watch. Uh, maybe not quite as fun to watch when they're 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 not shooting the ball as well from the outside, but but you know what they're they're still getting a lot of open shots and eventually they'll start falling again. And I, I think this is just a rough patch. I I I, I don't I, I still think they're they're capable of playing like a top ten team. I, I'm not sure if they're capable of consistently playing like a top ten team, but the the season will play itself out and we'll see. It was Kansas State knocked off TCU on Saturday. So that was that that's what knocked TCU out of the top twenty-five. Uh, and then, you know, prior to to beating Oklahoma last week, Kansas State almost beat KU in Lawrence. It was only a one point game, and I think they were like they had like a really bad final possession of that game where they settled for a long deep three instead of trying to attack the, the basket and, and go for the win with a a, a two point shot attempt. So I did yeah. just want to bring this up one more time too, Lee, about Kansas State. You watched that game. Uh, they're the the big guy, the guy who who didn't miss any jump shots, the Dean Wade guy, mm-hmm. who is like their leading scorer. He's I, I hate him so much, <laughs> and th- this is this, this is now me just talking as a fan. Everybody, I don't know if I've if I've disliked someone in Big Twelve basketball more than him in in over a decade. I mean, it's been I really don't like him. Oh, okay. And so I just wanted to let you know, and I, and I bet, and I'm assuming we have a bunch of listeners listening to this right now, and they're they're vigorously shaking their head in the affirmative when I say that, because there's there's no way that anyone outside of Manhattan, Kansas, actually likes Dean Wade, right? I, I mean, I'm sure some people do, Grant. I don't know. Or is or is or is this just me and my weird one of my weird little quirks? What do you hate more? To, do you hate Dean Wade more or Auburn's offense more in football? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, a matter of principle, Auburn's offense, just because <laughs> a it's a matter of principle. <laughs> well, just because it'll, well, because Auburn's offense will be a lot more relevant, you know, for you know, for longer than Dean Wade ever will be. So, it's. Uh, <laughs> I mean, not not a shot. At, I mean, Dean Wade is clearly a. I mean, he's 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 good. I I would only hate him because he's good, but. The reason why I hate him is because he doesn't really look like he's good, but he's still good. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone knows what I'm talking about. Every everyone knows there's that one basketball player that everyone hates and they can never put their finger on it. And and Dean Wade just happens to be the, the guy in the Big 12 this year that I just despise. Yeah, so, I haven't uh, I haven't found that guy yet. Uh we'll see if if the season progresses and I I determine one of them, but I don't know who that is for me yet. Um just one more note on OUKU again, once you're listening to this, that game will already have been completed. Uh, KU has won five in a row, so it seems like the Jacks are starting to figure things out. So it would be nice if Oklahoma can go ahead and right in the ship Tuesday night and get a nice W over Kansas. Grant, anything else you want to add before we wrap this bad boy up? I think we did a pretty good job there, Lee. I'm kind of looking forward to uh, following Baker Mayfield and, and, and Mobile for the Senior Bowl this week. Yeah, I, uh, before we started recording this, I was watching a bit of the practice on Tuesday when he showed up finally. Uh, kind of late, but he was at practice, and they were showing him and Josh Allen and Nick Falk. Is that is, is Nick? No, Luke. <laughs> Luke Falk from Washington State. And there's one other quarterback that was throwing, and and every ball I saw Mayfield throw was pretty much right on the money. And some of the other quarterbacks were definitely missing some throws. It's just what a shocker. And uh, Mike Mayock was trying to talk about how good of an arm Josh Allen has, and like 
the receivers were having a tough time catching his passes because his arm was just so good and they're just not used to catching balls coming out of a player's hands like Josh Allen's and to me it just kind of sounded like he was making excuses for Josh Allen not being very accurate so which statistically Josh Allen's not very accurate but yeah I'm, I'm with you. yeah I haven't I'm gonna be honest with you I haven't decided which which side of that argument I've come down on whether or not it's going to be because I don't think there's any in between I think Josh Allen is either going to be a massive bust or he's going to be really good like like and I mean when I say really good I mean like Ben Roethlisberger level of good so it's going to be one or the other there will be no in between there at all and I have not decided which side of the aisle I'm falling on there because I actually I, I have seen some some Josh Allen highlights and you know like those professionally put together highlight tapes and I mean, yeah, the the talent absolutely jumps out of the screen on you. But I've also watched him live in some games, and he is not an accurate thrower whatsoever, at all. Like he has, he does not have a shred of accuracy in in the arm of his. So it'll be interesting to see if that's something that he can develop, you know, as a professional. We'll see. Well, a lot of time to talk about it. Well, that is our show. We'll be back next week with more Oklahoma football discussion. We'll see if any other random news breaks between now and then. We'll also be able to talk about the Senior Bowl, which is this upcoming Saturday in Mobile, Alabama. The aforementioned Baker Mayfield, Dimitri Flowers, and Oboe all playing in that game. So best of luck to them. Until next week, for Grant, I am Lee. This is West of Everest.